Welcome to Science Fiction 101, the podcast series which looks at science fiction from all the angles, the past, the present and the future. I'm Phil. And I'm Colin. And we're recording in late November 2023. And today we have our third annual time travel episode, where we fly back to a year in the past, pick up a science fiction magazine and try to find out what the field was like back in those days. Uh, We'll also have a related quiz and our usual run through of the past, present and future of science fiction. Before we go any further, a reminder that you can join in the conversation by posting a comment on our blog, which is at 101sf.blogspot.com or on Facebook, where you can find us as Science Fiction 101 Podcast. So, Colin, are you ready to go back in time? <laughs> Let's. <laughs> Let's pull that lever and spin that wheel. Uh, previously, when we've done this, we've visited the early 1950s, where we read a Galaxy magazine, if I remember rightly. And I think we were quite impressed with that one, weren't we? It was good, yeah. I like the stories. Yeah. And then last time we went to the early 60s, and I think that was a magazine of fantasy and science fiction. And I can't remember specifically any of the stories from that, but I, I, f- I have a feeling that we came away from that one slightly underwhelmed. I think so. You're right. Yeah. So now we arrive at 1968, and the British science fiction magazine New Worlds, which at that time was leading the genre in the so-called New Wave period. Now, do you think we need to explain New Wave, Colin? We do, because I had to look it up just to make sure I had the right definition so that I understood it myself. Right. Okay. Depends how old you are. If you're of a certain age, you may have lived through the New new Wave. And if you're of that sort of on-the-cusp age group, like I am, I mean, I was alive at the time when New Wave was happening, but I... I wasn't reading science fiction. I was far too young at that point. Um, So I'm sort of at the very tail end of New Wave. It's there in my consciousness, but I didn't really experience it while it was happening. And I guess if you were born well after that period, which is the late 60s, early 70s, it may not mean anything to you at all. You may not have any experience uh, of the New Wave. So what what can we say about it? Um, I mean, my understanding is that the term itself came from French cinema. And when new things started to appear in the science fiction field in the 1960s, people started calling it a new wave. Hmm. But I don't know that there was ever any consensus on what constituted a new wave. It's just that anything that looked a little bit out of the ordinary was new wave. I went to the science fiction encyclopedia and I looked up their definition for it. Yeah. And their definition was uh, imagistic, highly metaphorical, inclined more towards psychology and the soft sciences rather than hard science fiction. Kind of a response to the idea that science fiction was starting to stagnate a little. You were getting the same stories remixed over and over and over again. And sometimes the science would change, but there wasn't a lot of things happening in the story itself. And that that does sort of chime with our own experience of reading in the genre, doesn't it? That uh, it's it's all about tropes and it's all about things that you've seen before, but you're you're hoping to see in some sort of new combination or or new mix up of familiar elements. From the list of things you said were defining characteristics of new wave from the science fiction encyclopedia, I'm surprised that 
they don't mention things like breaking of taboos or the kind of anti-authoritarian perspective, because that's my feeling about what um, new wave science fiction was about. It was about breaking taboos and it was about challenging authority. It was about experimental writing. What are your thoughts on that? I think all those things existed in the stories that we read this last month. Yeah. Um, and you yeah. know, it might have been mentioned in the article, but you know, I was looking for that one particular soundbite, which really kind of defined the entire thing. Right. We're going to talk about a story by Samuel R. Delaney, and yeah. it it matches the, the the definition that I brought up, and it it kind of has some of the challenging mores and social you know, challenging social mores and authority that's there, but it's not as strong as many of the other stories. Yeah. So what we're doing today is we're reading the December 1968 issue of New Worlds magazine. So if you go to the show notes, you'll find a link there that will take you to a PDF. So you can either read along with us or you can read the magazine after you've heard our pontifications. Just to say something about New Worlds as a magazine, it originated in the 1940s and it was a kind of a British equivalent of Astounding Stories uh, under the editor Ted Carnell. Um, the editorship was taken over by Michael Moorcock sometime in the 1960s and that's when the magazine really took on the reputation for being an experimental magazine. It was always struggling to survive it, this is probably true today as well, that magazines live on the knife edge because there's just not enough money to, to run magazines ever. And what happened with New Worlds is that it was teetering on the edge of going out of publication. There came a point just before the issue that we're going to read where the magazine had been serialising a Norman Spinrad novel, Bug Jack Barron. That novel it really is kind of definitive new wave science fiction. Around that same time, the magazine was being supported by government funding because uh, the editorial team had applied for funding from the uh, the Arts Council of Great Britain, uh, which is a, a publicly funded body which supports the arts. Um, they only got a small amount of their income from that grant, but they were being supported by government money. Now, Bug Jack Barron... <laughs> was a very challenging, shall we say, science fiction work. And questions were asked in the British Parliament about whether the government, whether the British government should be funding magazines that publish stories like Bug Jack Barron. So there was a huge amount of controversy. And that story finished being serialised immediately before this issue that we're reading today. So we're oh. reading <laughs> the December 1968 issue of New Worlds. So it is really at the height of its notoriety. So did, did Parliament decide to stop funding New Worlds because of this? No. That story? No, I don't think, I don't, I could be wrong, but I don't think any action was taken, but it, it stirred up a hornet's nest, I believe. This, this is all secondhand stuff. You okay. know, I, I, I wasn't there. <laughs> I have a, a quick contextual thing to ask you. Mm. We'll probably talk about ads, but yeah. when I see a number followed by the small case letter S, that means shillings, right? Oh, yes. And that would be analogous to, to cents or pennies in, in uh, 
Yes. American. Yes, that's right. I hadn't actually thought about this, but this issue was published in 1968. That was when British money was not decimal. We didn't quite have... A, we hadn't reached the point where we had 100 pennies to the pound. We were working on a system of 12 pennies to a shilling and 20 shillings to a pound. <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> You know, I've always understood that other countries have different monetary systems, and I hadn't realized that England's was, was so non-decimal. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and th the next thing I'd like to ask you, and I know that you're not, you know, widely, widely read, although you're certainly more, um, probably more familiar with, with me, is the illustrations in this. Yes. There's a fair amount of nudity. <laughs> there and is. I, I'm a, I'm a pretty conservative guy, and I, I was really shocked. It's like, wow, there's there's a naked woman on the page. And it had really nothing to do with the content of the story no, that we were talking about. And it left me wondering, well, is this another new wave-ism where they're kind of like, you know, sticking it to the man by being artistic and saying, yeah, we're putting nudes in here? Or is that a, a particularly <laughs> British thing? Because there's the page five girls, page six girls. Page three. Page, oh, they've been promoted. <laughs> Yeah, no, they were always on page three. Oh, they were always um, yeah. on page three, yeah. <laughs> so is, is that really common? I don't, well, it certainly isn't common nowadays. I, th I think it's more a sign of the times than anything else. I mean, we're talking here about the late 60s. We're talking about that big countercultural revolution that came with anti-Vietnam protests, that came mm -hmm. with the Summer of Love, so-called, which was 1967. You know, if you look at um, footage and pictures of the Beatles around that time, they went from being smartly dressed little mop tops <laughs> to being very flamboyantly dressed, long hairs, facial hair, you know, all of that sort of thing. And that's that's what the world was going through and certainly what the UK was going through, certainly what London was going through in the 60s. So I, I was surprised to see gratuitous nudity on page whatever it is 12 of this issue mm -hmm. and it is gratuitous because it literally has no connection to the story that's surrounding it but some of the other illustrations are in there that are in there do connect to the stories so it's a bit of a, a mixture of things and then also in the middle of this issue there's a like a four or five page article on Andy Warhol and, yeah. this, and this is a science fiction magazine, so <laughs> what's going on there? I really don't understand that. I suspect it's because the magazine was presenting itself not just as a science fiction magazine, but as a countercultural, experimental magazine of the arts, with an S, plural. And that's partly related to the fact that they had some Arts Council support. I, I imagine all of that fed into the Arts Council application, which was made by Brian Aldiss, by the way. Oh. <laughs> Whose name is on the cover of the magazine. Well, he's he's the very first story. He is, which which actually starts on the cover, doesn't it? It's not... Um, normally, you have an illustration which might relate to the main story, but here, the main story itself begins on the cover. If your magazine was struggling and you want to encourage people to pick it up, a great way to do that is to have one of those relative illustrations right on the front cover. Yeah. But then why not grab them with the hook for a great story? Yeah. Why not? <laughs> this was not a great story, this first story. <laughs> um, no, no, I, I totally agree. Just looking at the cover, you know it's a story and you know it's by Brian Aldiss because it says Brian Aldiss, there's a colon. His name is 
the boldest name on the cover, and then the text of the story begins. But it doesn't give the title, and it doesn't pick up again until page four, where it says, Continued from front cover, Brian W. Aldis, and the stagnation of the heart. So that's the first time you see the title of the story. Yeah. I suppose as a sort of a plot summary, we could say that it seems to be set in India. It seems to be featuring a character who is immortal or has gained longevity, if not absolute immortality. And they're on some sort of journey to Calcutta. And that's all I can remember of the story. Yeah, they stopped to hunt goats because that was a government-supported activity. It's like they had become pests almost. Yeah. And there are weird interjections of of, uh, quotes and and thoughts, perhaps. Yes, sort of presented in italics. And there's a name of a character. There's a Dr. Khan. I think that's right. And it's it's Dr. and Mrs. Yale are the uh, the immortal guests that are supposed to come help them with this disease that's happening. Yeah, that's right. So we've got Ayub Khan is the other character. And that name bugged me a little bit. I read the story and then afterwards I went and looked up the history of Pakistan because I'm really quite ignorant of the history of the Indian subcontinent. But what I read was that essentially there was a military dictatorship in Pakistan up until late 1968. And the dictator who was overthrown was called Ayub Khan. Oh. And here's a character in this story called Ayub Khan. And I knew that name. I'd heard that name before. And when I looked up the history of Pakistan, I thought, whoa, is this meant to be significant? (laughs) Is Brian Aldis connecting the events of this story to an overthrow which, at the time of writing it, could not possibly yet have happened. I I was a little bit baffled by that, and I'm still baffled by it. And frankly, I could make nothing out out of this story. It just stopped, and I thought, is that the end? Yeah, that's just the end. Yeah. Later on, I looked it up on ISFDB and found that this is the second story in a series. Oh, (laughs) that would make a lot more sense. It might. It might make more sense. It, I mean, it would make even more sense if there was a third part, but there isn't. Yeah, I'm totally baffled by this one. Anyone listening to this, if you know this story and you know, <laughs> you know the, the secret of what it's supposed to be about, please let me know, because I'd love to know. But at the moment, I feel, as a reader really locked out of this story. You know, Seth is always talking about visual effects that don't stand up to time because they don't look good in the future because we're used to, you know, newer yeah. or better things. Yeah. And But there are also story things which that happens to. Yes. Sometimes people struggle reading the older science fiction because we're used to a more modern science fiction and it doesn't hold up. Sure. But there's a real danger in putting too much of the current pop culture or events into a story because then it's great for being a, a piece of the times, yeah. but you add 50 years to it and the future reader is completely unable to connect and identify with it. It's like you, you don't have the key that unlocks it. Somebody listening to this might have the key and, and can send me the key and then I turn the key and <laughs> ah, it all falls into place. But at the moment, I, I feel completely locked out. Shall we move on to another story? Sure. (laughs) That one, by the way, dear listener, is the one that has the gratuitous nude lady holding what appears to be a tray of peppers. Just before that story, 
by the way, there was a special Christmas offer uh, letting you have 12 issues of New Worlds for just £2.10, uh, which is £2.50 in modern money, which is probably about $3. We could also mention, uh, as we go through the on the table of contents, the editorial position of the magazine at this point. Uh, the editors are Michael Moorcock and James Salis, with Charles Platt as associate editor. And then there's a whole load of other people listed as sort of um, contributors, uh, including Eduardo Paolozzi as aeronautics advisor. OK. <laughs> Can't say I noticed any aeronautics in this magazine. Uh, and then there's a little um, couple of news pages. Then we come to the second story, which is called The Apocalypse Machine by Leo Zorin. This was a much more familiar trope to me. Yeah. Would you like to summarize the story? Yeah, the summary of this story is we lose more customers this way. <laughs> There's a a sales pitch about a machine which you can point at your your enemies and it's being demonstrated to these people and they're actually destroying pieces of London while they do it. Yeah. <laughs> they they kind of start on the individual scale with uh, killing people on the street and then yep. they move up to buildings and blocks. And the, the story ends with uh oh no, I see you can't you're dead, gentlemen. I don't know if there's a moral to the story, but the, the kind of situation that's described is a, precisely about destroying things while you sit comfortably at a distance, which is what all modern warfare is about. When, when I say modern warfare, just 20th century and 21st century warfare has mm -hmm. all been about, okay, you might have some infantrymen at the front line, but mostly you're shooting at people from increasingly larger distances to the point where we got to intercontinental ballistic missiles. You don't even have to invade somebody else's territory. You can kill them all from a totally separate continent. And that's mm -hmm. really what the story is satirizing. But I quite like this one because it's it was easily understandable and it had a point <laughs> and it was I think it's timeless. I don't think it's tied to the night to nineteen sixty eight. No. Uh in fact I would say it probably worked well at least through the late eighties. Yeah. Because it reminds me of an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. Ah. Do you remember the planet where they visit, where the salesman pops up and then a, a drone will attack the Enterprise? <laughs> no, I don't remember that one. And every time the drone attacks the Enterprise and the Enterprise wins, the drone gets stronger and more powerful. Uh, and they're finally able to short out the machine uh, and then go home. No, I don't remember that one. I've probably seen it. But... Uh, it was definitely season one or season two because Lieutenant Yar was there. Okay, yes. The Arsenal of Freedom. Okay. And these people had developed this technology for, that has an you know an ever increasingly adaptive and responsive weapon, and ended up destroying themselves and almost destroyed the Enterprise. It's season one, episode twenty-one. But this story, this um, Leo Zorin story, I thought was quite okay. It's kind of a timeless story. It could have been published at any time, really, after World War Two. And as you say, that listing of places in London that they're <laughs> bombing and shooting at sort of makes it quite real because I've heard of all those places and I've been to some of them. Oh, wow. <laughs> Hopefully you aren't in any of them right now. But <laughs> ah, That's right, yeah. <laughs> um, after that is the inexplicable article about Andy Warhol, <laughs> yeah. which I don't think we need to discuss, do we? <laughs> No, I'm not a fan of his art, and so I, I skimmed it, and that's about what I did. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm mildly interested, but uh, and I did read it, but it's um, we we came to this for the science fiction, not for the 
art article. But if anyone is interested in Andy Warhol and wants a good introduction to what he was all about, I think it's a decent article. It's just not all, not what we came for. Yeah. Interestingly enough, though, here in you know the 2020s, uh, Andy Warhol is very significant because his derivative artwork was the center of a recent lawsuit that he lost. Really? Yeah. The question was, if you take something and recolorize it, are you really making a new unique piece or are you violating oh. the artist's original copyright? Yeah. And it's significant today because that influences the interpretation of newly created generative AI artwork. Mm. So then we come to the next story, which is The Delhi Division by Michael Moorcock, who by sheer coincidence is the editor of this magazine. <laughs> I, wonder how, I wonder how he got this story accepted. <laughs> I bet he was paid on time. <laughs> I have to admit, the first paragraph of this made me groan because we're back in India again. <laughs> After that Brian Aldiss story, which was set in India, we're into another story set in India. But uh, also in the first paragraph, we learn that Jerry Cornelius is the lead character of this story. Now, I'm not greatly knowledgeable about Michael Moorcock or his Jerry Cornelius stories, but I do know that he wrote quite a lot of them. And that Jerry Cornelius is a kind of a James Bond figure, but he can also be any kind of heroic secret agent. And in this story, he seems to be an assassin uh, on some kind of mission. And of course, he drives a Phantom 5, which I, I don't know if that is a Rolls Royce, but I immediately pictured a Rolls Royce. This story, I quite liked it on a moment to moment basis because it's very clear what's going on. Um, Moorcock, I think, is a very good writer in the sense of not writing stuff that's full of ambiguity in terms of events of the story. But I have to admit that once again, I got to the end of the story and I thought, oh, is that it? Has it finished? Yeah. Because it didn't seem <laughs> terribly conclusive. Uh, do you think this might also be serialized? Probably. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't find anything specific that said that. And I have seen that this story has been anthologized a number of times as a standalone story. So maybe it is or was intended to be part of a longer sequence. Who knows? But uh, it's, hmm. it's like a James Bond adventure and it just sort of stops. Yeah. What did you think? I... <laughs> <laughs> So this, you know, I read the stories in order, and so by this point, I'm, I'm reading stuff going like, wow, this is really, really different. I can't find a moral to the story. I can't <laughs> always find, you know, what, what's the science fiction hook that's in here? Yeah. I mean, they were certainly there on the other story, in the first two stories when I, you know, go back and reflect on it. Uh, in, in this one, I'm not really getting any of that. I think this, this, this going right to the core of the anti-establishment challenging the the common ideas of science fiction science fiction yeah possibly but i think the the way the story is told is is quite conventional really you know the, the clarity of the descriptions of the things he does it's a bit weird i don't think it is a science fiction story really and i guess that new worlds would have said well no we're not a science fiction magazine we're speculative fiction don't you know <laughs> and okay all right then anything goes in that case but what's what is the speculative element i don't know it just seems like as, as i say it's like a james bond story but with a, a more of a countercultural agent so he again he dresses flamboyantly 
he has wide collars and cravats and scarves and floppy hats and that sort of thing. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, and also on page 27 at the end of this story is another gratuitous nude. Yeah. Now, see, I think this would have been much more appropriate uh, two stories down. Oh, yes. Yes, yes. I know what you mean. Yeah. Yes. This story was, it's numbered. Yeah. Little chapters. Yeah. It's like little chapters, one one paragraph, two paragraphs. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Every once in a while, you get a uh, a quote from the news or some other piece that's just kind of randomly thrown in. Yeah. Um, I suppose all of that is sort of experimental technique. Maybe if James Bond is science fiction because of what goes on, then this is also science fiction because, like you said, it kind of reads like a spy piece. It is curious that there's this obsession with India and Pakistan in the late 60s. I mean, there was a lot going on in that part of the world, but I don't quite see, from this distance, I don't quite see the point. And it could have been set anywhere. Yeah. I want to say that in the late 60s, there was a a large rejection of Christianity, classical Christianity and Protestantism. Yeah. And I think a lot of people turned to the Eastern religions. And India's religion, I think, was a little more approachable to people than um, Tao. Yeah. Or some of the others. In fact, weren't the the Beatles, I think they had uh, a guru for spiritual guidance. That's right. Everyone was was off to India. (laughs) That was around 68, I think. I didn't like that story. I found it quite easy to read, but I... Yeah. Maybe that's a problem in reading a story in a series, because there's the talk about Sabiha, who is this other agent. Mm-hmm. And at first, I thought he was trying to kill her, but then it turns out that he was working together with her. And then a priest gets shot, and I, I just yeah, <laughs> did not understand what was going on here. When you describe it like that, that sounds even more like a James Bond film to me not not a book i've never read a james bond book so i couldn't say but a james bond film because i i've sat through many james bond films and i have no idea what's going on it's just a series of events you know there's an explosion here bond gets caught here gets really get breaks free here and it's just a series of events and you <laughs> you say why why are they doing this i don't know it's just james bond isn't it now i'll get all the bondians writing in now and telling me that i'm wrong but <laughs> Oh dear, shall we move on to the next story? The Colours by Thomas M. Dish. And again, I don't remember a great deal about this one, but I know that colours are referenced throughout. So this felt, there was. I'm trying to find the bit in the story, but there was something in here that felt a little bit more science fictional than the earlier stories. Uh, it's right at the beginning. If, if you look on page 28 in the second column, yeah. Raymond turned on the machine, an outsized television with the screen gone and its guts on view. Tubes twinkled. Colors flowed and faded on the back projection screen. And then there's this display of a color. And that's I think that's the science fiction right there. Yes. We experience it, but it's never explained to us, which is really quite real world if you think about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then the main character starts having a relationship with one of the women that's there. And that's kind of it. This one did seem very visual. But again, in terms of being a story, I was left a bit cold, even though the final paragraph, I thought, was... It goes, everything, all colours, the filthy walls, the sky falling against the window, snow, sheets of ice, was white. And he knew there would be no colours after this, the journey's end. And on the sign there, the white crystals of her name, 
Not Helen now, not with such sure syllables, no, just the white insatiable crystals, the name blinding white, the name whispered so incessantly in his veins, the dazzle, the only possible desire. I thought that was very poetic. And the beginning of the story is poetic as well, in talking about the walls being orange. So there's a sense of progress through the story, of going from very colourful to white. So in an imagistic sense, uh, I think that's quite powerful. But in terms of summarising the plot, to me it didn't amount to very much. You know, sometimes you read a story and, and it haunts you because the events of the story play on your mind and you're thinking about it. But this one, as soon as I put it down, it's gone from my mind. So that's probably a criticism of me more than of the story. You know, I, I still think about uh, where oak and hearts do gather. Yeah. The award-winning short story uh, from 2022. So I know what you mean about having a story grab you and having it play in your mind. And mm. yeah, this I think is a story of uh, falling in love and then obsession. Yes. You, you can find little hints like uh, on page 30. Without Helen, none of this would have made sense. She was his link not only to love, but to the world. Mm -hmm. And then as, as we progress through the story, uh, we find out that Helen isn't being faithful to him. Mm -hmm. But he, you know, he says, you know, she comes back, she always comes back. And then right after that is the, the discussion of the white crystals that you just mentioned. Yeah. Maybe the vagueness makes it great for being discussed around a coffee table. Yeah, yeah. Or, I, or, or something else, right? There's there's not a lot of meaning in it. And so you're allowed to inject your own observations and reality into it. I don't know. Yeah. I do wonder whether I, I should have read this one a couple of times, which I did with some of the others. The Brian Aldiss story, I read that one twice because my first reading of it, I thought, I don't see any point to this story. So I thought I'm going to have to read it again because I've missed something. But we didn't have that problem when we were reading stories from 1951 or 1962. Maybe we did have that problem and we didn't realize it. Perhaps. Hmm. I mean, one, one thing about those stories is they are definitely written to our audience. Yeah. And in our culture as well, right? So maybe because this is not, because it's, it's new wave rather than classical yeah it's really not written to our culture and so we're missing the the hooks and the bywords and the other things that people would latch onto to give more context to what they're reading could be that's a very generous uh, way of looking at it so i hope you are right <laughs> yeah given the next story i'm not sure that i am well let's move on to the next story it's called the new agent by joel zoss now this one i had a problem with right from the very beginning because the very first paragraph of it made me think, oh, hello, nobody would write a story like this today, because it seems like a, a sexist observation that's being made in the first paragraph. And, well, it is, but it's nothing compared to what happens in the rest of the story. The gist of this is that we have a character with the unlikely name of Nicholas Dugoni, who becomes a nurse or an intern in a hospital, and he is given a patient to look after who is kind of in a, a total, what do you call it, a vegetative state. Right. He takes advantage, and in his terms, he makes love to her. It, in my terms as a reader, he rapes her. And eventually, towards the end of the story, she begins to regain consciousness. In a very unlikely way, she seems to be in love with him or says that she is. Well, he says that she is. True. 
Yes, it's all told from his point of view, isn't it? Yeah. And when you when you read the discussion about what's happening, I mean, her eyes are open. Yeah. But her eyes have been open the entire time. But it, it talks about how she talks. She talks without moving her mouth or lips. Yeah. So for a little context, I'm married to a certified nurse midwife. Mm-hmm. And my mom is a nurse and she was a home health nurse, which here in the States means that she would travel to people's homes and take care of them when they could not go to a doctor or a hospital for treatments. Yeah. And I have a lot of my cousins and some of my other aunts and uncles are also in the medical field. Okay. And to understand what this person did to his patient is just abhorrent on all kinds of levels. Absolutely. And I was a little taken aback because I, I read horror, Mm. um, I just got done reading Stephen King's newest book uh, named Holly, mm-hmm. which, not, not to be too spoilery, is about two cannibals driven by racism and insanity. <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and they're professors in a university. Mm. Um, <laughs> and so I'm thinking, well, what is different about the discussion of them stalking their prey versus him raping this poor woman? And it's, mm. I think it's, it's the helplessness of her, of her and everything else that happens. Yeah. She's literally defenseless. Yeah. And Um, uh, whatever place she's being cared for is not doing anything responsible in, you know, checking up on the patient outside of his care. Yeah. And that's part of partly why this story is actually quite gripping. I mean, I, I really found this a page turner. I didn't want to put this one down. I mean, I was horrified by what the character was doing, but uh, I was still sort of drawn along with the story because, as you say, the she's essentially abandoned by her, her doctors because she's in this state that they consider to be permanent. The central character of the story, I think, sees himself as helping her because he's the only one who takes an interest in her. It's just that he does that in an inappropriate way. But then there's the bit towards the end where it looks like he might get caught. And while reading that section, it's a bit like when you read something like uh, Psycho or you watch the film Psycho, you find yourself in the shoes of Norman Bates, the serial killer, and you are worried that he's going to get caught. (laughs) <laughs> yes. You know what I mean? It's I mean it's the the classic thing that good horror stories can do. It can put you in a very wrong place in inverted commas and yet make you feel that you are that character, allow you to identify with someone who you think should be objectively unidentifiable with. And that's what this story does as well. The difference is that Norman Bates ultimately gets caught and gets his comeuppance. And this character doesn't. He he gets away with everything that he's done because the woman dies. And fortunately, even though she was pregnant, because he impregnated her, she dies before she can give birth. So, phew, he got away with it. And I don't know whether this story would have come across differently in 1968. I, I suspect it would have been read in a different way that we do today. Well, in the final sentence, uh, so, you know, the, the his victim dies during labor, giving birth to his son. Oh, yes. And, um, yeah, that's right. The, the final sentence is, that night he dreamt Phyllis Wexler gave birth to a wet tiger. What so, does that mean? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, uh, Shall we move on then? Yeah. There is a, a poem 
on page 39 by Bill Butler, which is a very short sort of anti-war poem. But we'll skip that. Yes. And then we get to what is actually the last story in the issue, which is Time Considered as a Helix of Semi-Precious Stones by Samuel R. Delaney, which is one of the most widely anthologised science fiction stories in history. It won a Hugo for Best Short Story. It won a Nebula for Best Short Story. Delaney, of course, is an American author. I don't know that he'd been in New Worlds before. He might have been, but he was really in the ascendant at this point. Shall I try and summarise? Yeah. Summarise the unsummarizable. Um <laughs> We're in the presence of a sort of a, a character who's a kind of a master of disguise, and he keeps changing his identity, uh, but he always keeps the same three initials. So he starts off as Harold Clancy Everett, and then later he becomes Hank Kulafry Eccles, and various other things. So every time he changes his identity, uh, he takes on a new name. He has in his possession some stuff, which we're never told quite what it is, but it appears to be of value. And he seeks out people in the criminal underworld who he might offload this stuff onto and make some money from. And as we go through the story, he climbs up the ladder of success. But at the same time as that, he's being hunted down by uh, an agent called Maud. I'm trying to think what organisation she's from. It's something like Special Services or something. Yes. And she has a very cunning way of tracking people, which she likens to a hologram. And the this, this is the science fictional content of the story, I think. Yes. Um, and she basically says, if you have a hologram and you break it into two pieces, what do you have? And the, the guy says, well, I think you have two bits of a hologram and no 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 what you have is you have two complete holograms they both can both pieces contain the whole image but they're slightly blurry and if you were to break them down into smaller pieces you'd still have the complete image in there but it would be blurrier still and she essentially her detective skills are based on trying to figure out the entire picture of what a criminal is up to from just a few small pieces of information. There comes a point towards the end of the story where I think it's implied that they are Maud and the criminal are now moving in the same social circles. He's become so important as a criminal that he's reached the point where he now needs to be friends with people in charge of the police and that kind of thing. Because that's how organised crime survives if you like. There's a hell of a lot crammed into this story. And I'm trying to think what the very ending. Oh, the very ending. He has learned how to think hologrammatically, as oh, they call it. Oh, that's it. Yes. And the organized crime upper boss, Artie. Yeah. Uh, Artie the Hawk. He's having a discussion with him at, at his ice cream parlor in Neptune. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's like selling refrigerators to ex Eskimos, yeah. ice cream in Neptune. Yeah. Um, about how in the future they're going to become arch rivals and try and kill one another. And if they can survive that, they'll become good friends because that's that's better for business that way. Yeah. Uh, I think the art budget uh, <laughs> for this particular issue of the magazine was all spent on this story. Probably. It's got about five line drawings. Well, like cartoons, aren't they? Yeah. Related yeah. to the story. And um, you, know, you mentioned that we never know what ECH is trying to sell. Is it? No, it's not ECH. 
It's HCE. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. So on on page 43, there's a great big question mark, which is an arm holding a bag. And so we never learn what's in the bag. Yes, that's right. About four paragraphs into the story. Hank Cullifroy Eccles, redheaded, a bit vague, six foot two, strolled out of the baggage room at the spaceport, carrying a lot of things that weren't his in a small briefcase. (laughs) (laughs) So that's what he's got, this swag that he's trying to offload. I really enjoyed reading this story, and I suspect part of the enjoyment is because of its complete contrast to everything else that's in this issue. I think this story is a story that has fun with the form, the science fiction form, the uh, crime story form. You know, this this is as much a story about gangs and criminals as it is a science fiction story. Yes. And I found all of that a lot. A, a relief to read this. Yeah, and I think it kind of bounces back and forth between humor. Yeah, uh, and then this this very serious, sometimes tragic discussion about little bits and pieces of the characters. Yeah. Oh, the other element of this story, which I I didn't mention when trying to summarize it, is that some of the characters in there are called singers, and <laughs> it's a bit weird. But there's like a handful of people around the world who are somehow ordained with this responsibility of being singers. And uh, one of them is used as a kind of a diversionary tactic in the story. But again, that's a a kind of a fantasy or a science fictional element, which uh, I don't know entirely what the point of that was. You know, there are other ways of creating diversions, but it certainly added to the richness of the story. And I came away from this short story, because it is defined as a short story, I came mm. away from this feeling that I'd read a novel, because the the level of detail in there, little incidental things are thrown out as the story is being told, make it a very rich reading experience. And yet it's not difficult to read at all. Yeah. I think this is one of the things that, that the new wave did well that I enjoyed was this, mm. this new concept of science fiction, because what we have here is really a cultural or social science fiction when yes. we're talking about the singers. Yes. I really liked the description, the sections on page 47, where it talks about who the singers are. And they're simply introduced as singers are people who look at things, then go and tell people what they've seen, yes. which doesn't sound that special. Mm. What makes them singers is their ability to make people listen. And then a description of of a bunch of famous singers from the early time, including a a woman who was blind, but her blindness allowed her to see the rings of Saturn in a way that no one else could. (laughs) So that was, yeah, I liked that. And that is the very last story in the issue. Did you read the book reviews? I skimmed the book reviews. Did you find anything interesting in there? (laughs) I did. There's a brief mention of a book. Uh, by a, a person who was fairly well known at the time yeah. called The Last Unicorn. Oh, yes. <laughs> it wasn't reviewed very well. <laughs> <laughs> but, but here we are, you know, 50 some odd years later, and yeah. it's it's about to be reprinted. <laughs> Absolutely. That's the thing that stuck out to me most. Most of the books being reviewed, I have not heard of. And I mean, there's a couple that are mentioned. Thomas Dish's Camp Concentration is mentioned. I'm familiar with that. I've got a copy of that. Most of the other books being reviewed have not really had a a lasting presence. But The Last Unicorn, as you say, dismissively (laughs) introduced as a a piece of whimsy, um, 
it's probably the most successful book out of all of all of the books mentioned. Yeah, and I think that includes the nonfiction Asimov book. Yeah, but I noticed in at the very last page of the book reviews, there's a kind of a we also heard from section, and there's they so they just do like a one sentence review. So they've got the death of Hitler. Um, <laughs> Heinlein in Dimension, so it's a, a book about Heinlein, and then the making of, quotes, Star Trek, close quotes, by Stephen E. Whitfield and Gene Roddenberry. Ballantyne, 95 cents. And then they just say, what it is, how it happened, how it works. Was it worth it, they say. So, so that's the first publication of the making of Star Trek. In 1968, British people did not know what Star Trek was because it hadn't been shown on British TV. It didn't show up on British TV until 69. I wonder if you can find that book. What, The Making of Star Trek? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I've got one of those. Uh, yeah. of, of this? This particular one? Yes, I've got that, yeah. Oh, my goodness. You must <laughs> have quite the collection. Oh, I have got quite the collection. But, uh, yeah, I can see it from where I'm sitting. I can't quite reach it because it's uh, I've got cables draped across me at the moment. But, yeah, I've got that book. Wow. And you've read it, of course. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very good book. Wow. I, I want to read that. I'm going to look to see if I can get it through our library system. Well, it's mostly about the origins of it, you know, how it was created from scratch. And it's very good in that regard. Still holds up very well, I think. Oh, cool. <laughs> and then they, they have Don't Miss Next Month's Issue. And they say that coming in the next issue of New Worlds, you've got another Jerry Cornelius story. Because they know you enjoyed that one so much. Yes. Um, uh, and then we go to the very back page of the magazine, and it has a photograph of a woman who I think is standing in a boat, and she's got something on her face which could be a snorkel, but I'm not really sure. And there's a paragraph of text which says, In her face, the diagram of bones forms a geometry of murder. After Freud's exploration within the psyche, it is now the outer world of reality which must be quantified and eroticized. And then it says, a neural interval, a J.G. Ballard production. And I've no idea what they're talking about. I can only assume that's an advert for a book called A Neural Interval. interval. But I don't know. <laughs> you know. If you look at the rest of her, her costume... Yeah. Uh, she, she appears to be chained. She is. She's like Harry Houdini. Like Houdini yeah. when he's chained up and put in a barrel. Uh, but if you look at what expression you can see on her face, yeah. she she doesn't have the calm. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I, I look at this and say, this this poor woman is going to be murdered by being pushed out of this boat. Yeah, I think so. But uh, <laughs> yeah, it was an appropriate ending for what we have just talked about. <laughs> So I'm I'm glad we did this because when we started out doing these um, reviews of old magazines, I had this idea of let's leap forward 11 years each time. So I think the first time we did it, we probably covered 1951 and then 1962. And then when I worked out what the next one would be, I figured that we would have skipped the new wave. And I thought that would be wrong because the new wave was a very important period in the development of science fiction and many of today's authors especially the older authors came through that new wave period and some of the biggest writers of the 20th and early 21st century either were part of the new wave or were associated with it jg ballard for example brian aldis that we've just read a story by 
Michael Moorcock, and in the US, Harlan Ellison. Mm-hmm. Um, Roger Zelazny was associated with the new wave, even though he predated it. So, you know, it's an important period of time. And I was afraid that if we jumped 11 years, we would have missed it. So I contrived that we landed our time machine in 1968. And now we've read these stories, which I assume are randomly typical of new worlds of that time. And a lot of it feels like it's from another planet. Whether those stories were never any good, or whether they were very good, but only made sense in that time, or whether, as we've suggested earlier, maybe there's a key to these stories and we just don't have the key. I don't know. So I'm glad we did this, but I'm also disappointed with the average quality of these stories. But the Delaney one saves it, absolutely. This particular issue, definitely. Yeah, yeah. What do you think overall? I I would agree with you. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was a good experience. It isn't often I'm sorry for reading a story, but Mm -hmm. I I could have done the one about the rape scene Mm -hmm. with... Yeah, just the, the the how long it went on and the level of detail and but yeah, the, there were parts of it that were very good. I think there were parts of it that could still be topical today, like the apocalypse machine. Yeah, I'm glad our time machine landed here. <laughs> I wonder where it will take us next year. Oh, I don't know. Are you ready for a devious online quiz that will challenge your your knowledge and sanity, perhaps? I think I am. Yes. Tell me All more. right. I'm going to paste you a link. Mm-hmm. When you bring it up in YouTube, please immediately pause it. Okay. And we'll make sure this gets in the show notes too. So if you folks want to follow along with us and juggle some electronic devices, you can do that. Maybe yep. you want to mute too. Yeah. This quiz then, what we're doing is films of the 1960s, I believe. Yes. And it's a visual quiz based on a YouTube video. We will play the video uh, it will show us an image and there'll be a countdown. Let's go ahead and stop the countdown uh, at number three. Okay. And then we can talk about it, each make our guesses, and then we'll play it on and, and see what the answer is. So just to be clear, what we're going to do is we're going to see some images on the screen from which we're going to guess what the film is. But for the benefit of the listeners, we're going to describe the image in a way that we hope will allow them to also play along. Yes. Okay. You ready? Are you going to describe this one? Uh, well, we're looking at a pair of people, uh, a man and a woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, the woman's wearing a, a pink outfit tied with a rope, and the man is dressed Ed- Edwardian, perhaps? Yeah. They're standing in a in a wooden laboratory, perhaps. I see a telescope, and there's... a. Uh, Oh, I used to know the name of it, but it's it's the special effect that has the the arc going between two wires that travels yeah. up down rhythmically. Yeah, they're looking at something on a table. It's like a gold ring floating in a, a piece of light, yeah. maybe slightly off the table. Do you recognize this movie? I do. I I do too. <laughs> and I should because it's an adapted movie. It's the Time Machine. <laughs> it is. Uh, so this is the George Powell film starring Rod Taylor. I believe you're right. Let's 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 play forward and see what we got. The time machine. Perfect. Okay, number two. So what I see here, it's black and white. First of all, um, we've got four characters on the screen, and they're children, and they've got blonde hair. Most of them have sort of got very sparkly eyes, and they're all sort of looking in the same direction. They don't look very happy. They're very smartly dressed, with 
one of them's wearing a tie. So a little boy with a tie. I guess they're about 10 years old, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, looking at the background, I think they're in a shop and it looks very British to me. Do you know the film? Because I do. Is this The Midwich Cuckoos? Uh, it's adapted from The Midwich Cuckoos, but the film is called Village of the Damned. Yes. Uh, there, there was another one about a year later or two two years later called Children of the Damned. I think this one is Village of the Damned. All right, let's roll forward and see how we did. Village of the Damned. Well done. I'll give myself <laughs> half a credit for knowing the story, but you, you get full credit. Yeah. So, yeah, so that was uh, The Midwich Cuckoos by John Wyndham. <laughs> we're, we're looking at a questionable piece of 1960s model making. <laughs> it appears to be a large bug. And, and it's large. You can tell it's large because it's either very close to the camera or it's flying over a tower that it seems to have broken. I know who the character is. I'm just trying to locate the movie. I, I don't know if they've okay. ever done their own. But uh, yeah. You've described it as a bug. I think in fairness to the listener, uh, I would describe it as a moth. <laughs> yes. And that gives us what I assume is this character's name. I think this is Mothra or the Japanese Mothra. So is it a film called Mothra or is this Godzilla versus Mothra? I think this is a film called Mothra. I think it's Godzilla versus Mothra because I don't think he ever had a standalone. Ah, oh, shame. <laughs> okay, let's let's find out. You're right. Mothra. All right. Next one. Again, this is this is very similar to the picture I described earlier, except this one is in colour. There's a group of characters. It's sort of head and shoulders shots. They're older and they're not little children this time. But again, they're all blonde. It's a very colourful picture, and they've all got sort of painted on eyebrows, a kind of a turquoise uh, eyeshadow. I think I know what this is. I'm, I'm not sure of the specific film, but I'm pretty sure I know what this is. Do you know it? I have no guess on this one. Ah. This, I believe, is one of the Doctor Who films starring Peter Cushing, so from the 1960s. So these were not official BBC films. They're not quite canon. <laughs> They're kind of canon adjacent. If I had to guess, I would guess it's Doctor Who and the Daleks. Let's play it. Doctor Who and the Daleks. You are doing great. <laughs> Number five. Here we have an, an astronaut standing above a cairn made of rocks. The wreckage of his ship is behind him. They're on an inclined slope. Do you know it? I... Uh, I'm, I'm not certain but I'm going to hazard a guess that this is Robinson Crusoe on Mars. You know, I wondered about that, but I was assuming that he would be able to breathe the Martian atmosphere. Yeah, but maybe he can't at this point, or he doesn't know that he can. Because I think, doesn't he discover that there is some sort of plant that grows in a cave and it gives off oxygen? But before that, he doesn't know that he can breathe or something. I don't know. I don't know either. Or it might be a totally different film. Shall we find out? Let's find out. Oh, you're doing great. Are you keeping score? <laughs> I am. You are five for five. <laughs> okay. What are we looking at, Phil? Right. What we're looking at here is it would be a cityscape. I don't know if it's a particular city. It's sort of, it looks a bit New Yorkish. It's got a kind of an Empire State Building type of thing uh, in the background. But what's disrupting this cityscape is a a rather large lizard-like alien creature wading in the waters of the river. 
and he's got a kind of a sparkly electrical thing going on along the spines of his back and projecting out of the front of him as if he's firing an electrical bolt at the building. So that's my best guess to describe it. Maybe we can collaborate on this. Should we say it after three? Sure. One, two, two three. three. Godzilla. Godzilla. <laughs> I didn't know whether I was going to say Godzilla or Gojira. Um, but it, it's Godzilla. I don't know what the film is, though. It, assuming this this image is true to the film, this is a colour film. So it's not the original Godzilla, because that was black and white. Yeah. Uh, so I, I don't know which one this is. I'm wondering if this is the the Godzilla movie with Raymond Burr in it. Well, wasn't that the first one? It could be, but I would have. maybe I've only seen a colourised version of it. Ah. Did they colourise things in the 60s? Oh, because we may not no. be looking at the original printing. That's right. It. it may have been colourised in the 90s. Yeah. I'm willing to stick with Godzilla. Do you want to pick a sub-Godzilla sub um, movie? Yeah, I can't think of any specific titles. I, I'm not that familiar with them. I'm going to say this is Godzilla versus something, but I don't know what. Okay, let's explain. roll forward and see what yeah. it is. Oh, <laughs> destroy all monsters. <laughs> Presumably there's okay. more monsters here. Presumably. <laughs> but we're just not seeing them. He must have ran into that building and Godzilla's trying to get him. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm, I'm guessing it was destroy all monsters with special guest star Godzilla, but I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, yeah, it's your turn to describe. Okay. Uh, we're definitely looking at a lab. Yeah. And what appears to be a, uh, a person's head alive floating in a, a little tub with all kinds of things attached to it. Yes. <laughs> I would say it's a woman's head. She's looking off to the side and it's, it's black and white. Yeah. And she, there's sort of all sorts of laboratory equipment around her, clamps and stands. And what I'm guessing is probably a Geiger counter. And there's like a, a vacuum hose. And uh, she, her head is being held in position by what appear to be three wooden spoons or spatulas or something. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, I've never seen this before. I don't know what this is. I know this movie. Oh, good. Uh this is a yeah, this is a horror movie and it's the yeah, it's it's a Nazi evil Nazi scientist experimenting to see whether or not a person's brain can control multiple uh multiple other things and I want to say it's the incredible living brain. So let's play it forward. The brain that wouldn't die. <sighs> what did you say it was? The Incredible Living Brain. Ah, maybe it's an alternative title. Yeah, who knows? <laughs> so, on to the next one. Yes. Uh, to describe this image, in the foreground we have a woman lying apparently unconscious, and she's wearing sort of science fictional clothing, so sort of a silvery top and silvery thigh-length boots. Mm -hmm. And then there's an what appears to be an angel standing over her he's sort of touching her maybe he's giving her cpr or something but he's got your typical angel wings mm -hmm. um he's blonde i don't recognize him as an actor and the background they seem to be in some sort of cavey setting but i'm not really sure i have a theory as to what this film is what do you think i'm at a complete loss i don't ever remember seeing this right I'm guessing that this is Barbarella. Oh. Because that could conceivably be Jane Fonda. Yeah. In her thigh boots. All right, let's find out. Yeah. Oh, good. Hey. <laughs> so let's do a couple more. 
Your turn. So we're looking at a man and a woman. The man's wearing a suit and holding a bottle of champagne. Mm -hmm. And the woman is wearing a groovy dress off the shoulder. They are in a... There's... I'm going to say they're in a like a maybe a storage room yeah. because I see trunks and lots of just random things. Yeah. And sitting on something on the ground, mm-hmm. which explains why she's kind of half kneeling and his arm, his knees have that that strange bend to them. The actor reminds me of James Coburn. Do you know why that is? Uh, is that because it is James Coburn? Yeah, that's oh, exactly excellent. why. <laughs> And I want to say he has a spy movie in his background, but I have no idea yeah. what the title might be. I think it's probably Our Man Flynn or something with Flynn in the title. In Like Flynn, something like that. One of those. It was a kind of a um, a James Bond knockoff. Yeah. Shall, shall we play it? Let's. President's um, Analyst. Uh, okay. I think you get a half point for knowing. Knowing a fact that isn't <laughs> related to the image. <laughs> well, you knew the character. <laughs> I don't know if it is the same character. We'd have to look that one up. I don't know the the film. Uh, So we're on to number 10 now. And this one is, to me, instantly identifiable. Yeah. But I will describe it. What we have is a close-up of a face. And the face is within a space helmet. And it is lit predominantly by red light, reflected in the space helmet... We see the cause of the red light is a series of sort of thin rectangular strips. Other than that, it's impossible to describe. It's a, it's a, a, an astronaut, and I think we both know this one, don't we? Yeah. It's 2001, A Space yep. Odyssey. And isn't this when he pulls out Hal's memory chips? Yeah, that's it. Yeah, one by one, reducing Hal to a gelatinous blob. Not literally. All right. So how did we do? The noted professor from from the UK got seven out of ten. Way. The the uncultured American from the United States got two and a half. Oh my! <laughs> Apparently, I need to watch more sixties movies. You certainly do. Well, there you go. There's some homework for you. You can watch uh, Destroy All Monsters, followed by the President. Was it the President's Analyst? Yes. Yeah. And it, it is not a uh, Man Flynn movie. It's not. Okay. No, I didn't think so. Yeah. But yeah, we'll have the link in the show notes so that if you want to take this yourself, you can challenge yourself on 1960s movies. Well, thank you for that. Um, Once again, on the podcast, we're pioneering a form there by doing a visual quiz in a purely sound medium. So I I hope everyone enjoyed that. (laughs) (laughs) Shall we move on to our past, present and future? Yes. Yeah, let's. For past items, I've, I've got two. The first one is... If people enjoy the kind of thing that we do, which is go back in time and look at old science fiction, there's a website that does that really well, and it's called Galactic Journey. I don't know if we've mentioned it before, but if you go to galacticjourney.org, essentially everything on the website is presented, uh, I don't know how many years in the past, let's say 50 years. They're kind of living 50 years ago. I think it's probably more like 55. But they've chosen a period of time ago to live in and everything that's on the website is presented from that point of view so you get to relive the best years of science fiction Uh, the other past item i have is uh, another short film i mentioned two short films last time but this is quite an old canadian short film called universe it's 
about half an hour long. And this is a film that influenced 2001 A Space Odyssey because Stanley Kubrick watched it when he was preparing for 2001. And it's a little documentary. It's about uh, space and it's got some model effects, sequences, you know, journeying out to the planets. And some of the people who worked on that film were then taken on to work on 2001. So one of the effects people and the narrator, Douglas Rain, was employed to be the voice of Hal. Oh, It's an interesting little film in its own right as a little snapshot of what people knew about space back in the day. But because of those 2001 connections, it, it gives it an added interest, I think. So that's on the Canadian Film Board website. So I'll give, give you a link for that in the show notes. What have you got for past? I have an article from The Guardian mm-hmm. talking about a subject that we recently covered, which was Doctor Who. Oh, no. I think I know this article. Yeah. Uh, collectors apparently have more of the Doctor Who lost episodes. Yeah. But they are afraid to turn them over to the BBC because they really want possession of them. Although I don't know if if it's properly acquired, shall we say? (laughs) And because what they're doing might be illegal, having them. And so they're, they're hoping for an amnesty from the BBC so that these other episodes can be released back to the public. And that they can retain nascent control of the media, even if other people can have the story. Now, this story has been bouncing around all week. I've also seen many condemnations of this story because one of the people who was interviewed for the story didn't actually say some of the things that they say he said. Oh. Uh, and in particular, he wasn't interviewed about Doctor Who. He was presenting at some event um, that was just promoting film and the sort of preservation of film. And the journalist asked him some questions which were not about Doctor Who. And then suddenly he finds his name attached, well, not attached to, but mentioned in this article that is all about Doctor Who episodes. And this guy, I think he was called John Franklin, was not very happy with this. He complained to The Guardian, asked for a correction or a retraction, and The Guardian did nothing. They just left the story there. And other people have chimed in, people who have been involved in rescuing missing Doctor Who episodes. And the fact of the matter is the BBC does have an amnesty. The BBC position, particularly with Doctor Who, is if you've got one that we don't have, let us copy it and then you can have it back. They're not in the business of suing people for being in possession of stuff they shouldn't possess. They recognise that some of this stuff is missing. (laughs) And if collectors have it, they want a copy. No questions asked. So this entire story is based upon quotes that are not quotes. And yeah, so it's a bit of a mess. And I've been, <laughs> I've corrected quite a few people who've shared this. Well, I'm glad you've corrected me. So is, is The Guardian a reputable source of news? It usually is. Yeah, it's one of the better ones. And usually when they, they make a mistake, they admit to it and they publish retractions. But for this one, they don't appear to have done at the moment. I wonder why. I don't know. It's weird. (laughs) Do you have any more past items? No past items, but I have a couple of present items. Okay. Tonight, I am going to a Martha Wells book signing. Oh, fantastic. So she's on tour for her next, perhaps last Murderbot book. Yeah. And uh, she'll be at Powell's Bookstore. So I get to go and get a, a book autographed by her. That'll be fun. 
do tell her that you're from a podcast. Oh, I will. I will. <laughs> my only present item is a bit self-serving, but um, on my other podcast, which is Bradbury 100, uh, I've been doing a series of episodes called Chronological Bradbury, where I've been working through his entire body of work from the beginning in the order that they were published. And I haven't got very far. But <laughs> I've done three of these now. I think I've I've released two of them. There's a third one due to come out soon. But I've just in that third one got to the first year where he actually sold something uh, as a professional writer. So that's the year 1941. So he'd been writing, he'd been publishing for two years. But uh, it was only in 1941 that he's sold something for the first time so i've just covered that on my podcast so it's a mixture of present and past there in my other podcast we just recently did dracula you did i, I listened to your dracula adjacent episode yesterday oh what did you think um i i was a bit overwhelmed by the the range of uh product being covered <laughs> some of which i'd never heard of yeah um it is amazing mm. i came across a book called Dracula Daily. Yes. Have you heard of this? Uh, only from what you said about it on the podcast. Yes. So one of the, the interesting things about works being in the public domain is what the public can do with them. Yeah. And uh, there is a guy who has set up an automated mailing. I believe it's done every year. Starting on May 3rd, you can experience the Dracula story in chronological order because <laughs> in, in the actual novel, it's not. Mm. Dracula is such a byword that everyone knows who Dracula is. And I, I don't know how many people have actually read it, but it's epistolary, meaning that it's a series of uh, diaries, journals, newspaper articles, uh, and interviews, which are all date and time stamped. And they're fairly chronological in order. Mm. But what this what fellow has done is on Substack, where you can go and subscribe to this, you can get today's Dracula episode in your inbox and read it <laughs> over the course of uh, from May to November. So right about six months. The, the whole thing takes less than a year then. It does. Wow. It does. And it ends on November 8th, which happens to be Bram Stoker's birthday. Fascinating. That's really interesting. I did not know that. Yeah. I, I might try that next year and see how it works. You should sign up for it now and then by May, you'll, you'll have forgotten about it. And then you'll be surprised <laughs> by a sudden appearance. Yo, why is this guy emailing me about Dracula? We did so last year. Uh, I have one last present one. Mm -hmm. Mark Zikri is known for being a very prolific screenwriter for science fiction yeah. and is currently through crowdfunding doing a, a series called Space Command. And he does a series of, of posts talking about this, that, and the other. He's, he's very prolific in everything that he does. Mm. But he recently put out a video saying why science fiction matters. Mm. And it, it is a wonderful read that reminded me, which, which I needed after reading uh, <laughs> this episode of, or this journal of New Worlds, <laughs> what I love about science fiction. Uh, if you love science fiction and you wonder why, this, this, will, this will remind you. Uh, and then for future items, I've got one future item which kind of connects to New Worlds. And this is a new award, uh, which I think is being given next year for the first time. It's called the Aldis Award, named after Brian Aldis, who is the science fiction writer who uh, was featured in the issue of New Worlds that we read for today's episode. It's also a very famous science fiction novelist who was active for decades and so the oldest estate decided to 
run this new award. There you go. I'll put a link on our show notes. Do you have any future items? I don't. Then I think we've arrived safely back in the year 2023 after our perilous journey to <laughs> 1968. <laughs> That's it for today, then. We'll say thanks for listening. We're Phil Nichols and Colin Kusky. Our theme tune is from Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. Check out the show notes at 101sf.blogspot.com. And please give us one of those glowing five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>